Hello, everyone. I'm Eric Golden, and welcome to Making Markets. This show explores the psychology and structure that make up markets all over the world. Each week, we speak to experts about a different market so you can see what actually happens when money changes hands. From mainstream stock and bond markets to esoteric niches like vineyards, antique art, and crypto, we explain the transactions that underpin our economy. Making Markets is part of the Colossus family of podcasts, and you can find all our podcasts, including edited transcripts, show notes, and other resources at joincolossus.com. Eric Golden is the CEO of Canopy Capital. All opinions expressed by Eric and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the views of Canopy Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes and should not be construed or relied on as investment, legal, or tax advice. Clients of Canopy Capital may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast, including positions that are contrary to the opinions offered. Ideas move markets, and two well-known thought leaders go by their first names, Naval and Balaji. My guest today is Eric Jorgensen, who took it upon himself to capture the ideas and themes of both Naval and Balaji in two books I enjoyed. Like Poor Charlie's Almanac, these books make great gifts for people who are fans. In this conversation, he tells us what he learned from studying these great minds and the experience of writing the two books. We talk about the spread of anti-capitalistic ideas, techno-optimism, and the economics of publishing. Please enjoy this conversation with Eric Jorgensen. Eric, we're going to jump into the book today, but I thought an interesting place to start was where the topic is Balaji, this prolific and big thinker, starting off with a bigger question, which is what can money not buy? And why is that such a deep question that people ruminate for? I appreciate that question out of the context of the book, actually, because it's in the book and I'm sure we'll talk about it, but there's a lot that money can't buy. That is a theme actually that Naval has talked about, Balaji has talked about. There's so many people nakedly chasing money because they think it's the solution to their problems. And then sometimes when they achieve it, sometimes they don't. But even those who achieve it end up sitting there realizing 80% of their problems or hopes or dreams or desires money can't buy anyway. So it is really helpful, I think, early in life to separate, ask yourself that question, like truly what can money buy? How many things do I value that are outside that bubble and live your life broadly from an early age? I'm curious for you personally, when did you start asking that question or coming to a realization that it wasn't money? It was probably about halfway through writing the Naval book, maybe my third or fourth pass through all of that content. I mean, I spent three years like where all my free time was just reps on Naval's stuff. So I went really deep and went through all of those things. And he's got just so many ways to communicate that to you through the wealth side, through the happiness side, it just sinks in after some reps. And probably the context of seeing friends like reach that moment in life, there's so many valuable things that money can't buy. And it really helps you to reprioritize, like see the trade-offs that you're making. The mimetic engine is strong. Like if all your friends are chasing money and professional success, you tend to chase money and professional success. It is hard to remind yourself to step back, look at the pie chart. Like how are you allocating your time and resources towards all of the different purposes you might have in life or goals or hopes and see where they might be out of balance. Yeah. That's a deeper question that I usually start with. Zooming back out on the books, they have an interesting format. I think when people give advice to young people, they'll say, 
just do stuff. I think Mark Andreessen was on David Perel's podcast talking about be the person who takes the notes, that there's a lot of power in writing stuff down and capturing. And for those people who haven't read them, this is now your second book. There was the Almanac of Naval Ravikant, say that correctly. And I might even try Balaji's last name. And then the Anthology of Balaji. <laughs> and why they're so interesting is it was really as if it's that advice that someone might give to a young person, go take the notes, study this person and reproduce it. I'm curious, were you always intending to write these books? Or did this just come along? I'm super interested in these people and I'm gathering notes and summarizing my thoughts. And instead of a long thread of my 10 takeaways people publish, it somehow turned into a book. Yeah, this is a very classic it makes sense in the rearview mirror, but I never planned it. Each individual step was just the next obvious step. From where I am now, I see that some of my very favorite books through my 20s were compilations, right? I read the letters of Warren Buffett and Peter Bevelin's compilations of Ward and Charlie and Principles by Ray Dalio and Zero to One and all of these books that are like assemblages of other things. And at the same time, I was blogging and writing under this thesis that there is really incredible evergreen content out there that gets lost in all of these extremely novel, random feeds that is how we consume most of our information. Like, If you don't know to Google the concept product market fit and look for Mark Andreessen's canonical post on product market fit, you're likely to just never stumble upon this resource that is this incredible thing. So I, I blogged about a lot of different things in that thesis for a few years as I was kind of learning and reading all those books. And the Naval book was just a happy accident. I was listening to his podcast on The Knowledge Project, which is an incredible interview. I listened to it like three times in one week. And each time I had like different epiphanies. I was just heartbroken that like all of this incredibly valuable, timeless wisdom is stuck in this not searchable format that podcasting, as bullish as I am on it, and I'm hugely bullish on it, is still a subculture. It's still not super accessible. There's a lot of value to be gained by just transforming things between mediums. And a book is a really legible, global, timeless, Lindy format. I was like, maybe there's something really cool to do in helping this super valuable information and knowledge like reach this other format. And I just finished reading Ray Dalio's Principles. And I was like, who else do I wish had written their version of this book? It's like, Naval, for sure. I've been following him for 10 years. I learned so much. So I just tweeted that idea. I was like, what if I assembled the book of Naval's knowledge, like Navalage? What would that look like? What would it feel like? Do you want it? Tweeted that and went to bed and woke up and 5,000 people had retweeted it and Naval had retweeted it and was like, I'm happy to provide whatever you need. And I was like, oh shit, I've got an obligation now. Yeah. <laughs> As the guy who happened to tweet this and get some traction, I'm going to go all in on this. I thought it would take a few months and it took a few years. Knowing that at the end of this project, I was going to have to like put it in front of Naval and be proud of it. I just got really obsessive and really perfectionist about it and tried to make something great and what I thought was worthy of what else he had put out into the world. And that turned into this book that writing it changed me, but also publishing it has been blown my mind. But wildest expectations of what the response would be absolutely out of the water. It's over several million copies, right? This is a very successful book by any standard. It's sold more than a million and we give away the digital versions for free on the website and that's reached millions more. I mean, it's more than an order of magnitude past my wildest expectations. Yeah, when I first met you, I'm like, are you the guy who did the Naval book? And I was like, oh <laughs> shit, that's pretty cool. Yeah. The thing about the book, as I've now gotten to know you and try to put myself in your spot is, I think writing a book is very intimidating for people. I think distilling someone, all these people that are in the 
I would call it self-improvement, trying to learn, grow, like have that growth mindset. Naval is someone that is usually in a lot of people's top thinker list or really enjoy. And part of it is because he distills stuff down so cleanly. And the part I would be nervous about writing it or in your part being like kind of the creative artist compiling it is fucking up that level of distillation that very few people come close to. So I'm curious just to start how you thought about that. Yeah, I respect the hell out of his distillation skills. They're world-class. They're incredible. And he's been at it for years. And when you do truly deep dive, you can see him refining and refining and refining year over year over year. He's working on the same concepts and just communicating them more and more clearly and concisely, which is, I think, a lesson in itself. The respect for the material really guided my approach. So the whole book, there's not an original word in it from me past. I wrote an author's note, which is about 200 words long. And everything else is as close to a verbatim Naval quote as is accessible to the reader and useful for the reader. I really thought about what I was doing as assembling from these Legos, from these puzzle pieces. Naval has created all this incredible stuff across Twitter and clubhouse interviews and podcasts and a few essays, not a lot, a ton of material. And the atomic pieces of those interviews are incredible. Like the individual answers, the questions, like going through those things, the thought exercises, some of the podcasts that he's done with Nivy directly, but it was never distilled and organized from how do you approach this whole universe of Naval? What are the very best 1% of pieces and how do we arrange them so that the ideas build on each other in this very logical progression? And so that's really how I thought about my job. And I, it was a format decision early on to decide, like, I'm not going to like say, here's an Naval quote and here's my interpretation of it. I feel like that would have just watered down so much the excellence that is his distillation in the first place. So I tried to just get out of the way, set a high bar for what made it in there, the things that I thought were deeply and truly useful broadly and for many people into the future, like what's evergreen, what's widely applicable, what's incredibly useful. That's what made it in. You mentioned it changed you as a person. How did it change you? Because I can imagine a lot of investors will start reading like the letters of Warren Buffett and they almost start they're just so reading the same content. They think that that's how the whole world works as if they were Warren Buffett 40 years ago or something. <laughs> and then they realize they're completely wrong. But for a while, it's like in your mind, is it like being a method actor in a way? How did it feel for you? I think about it as like building a mental model, like a language model, right? Like I have a Naval on my shoulder that like I can have a conversation with. I know what he thinks about so many things that I can reference it. It's a little easier in Naval's case because Warren Buffett tells a lot of stories about Warren Buffett and what he's going through and the timeline that he's going through. Naval focuses really on principles and mental models, rules of thumb, areas of focus, aphorisms, like whatever you want to call them. They're very widely applicable. And so having something in your head that is like, in your career, seek accountability, seek a position of leverage. Those are almost universal things. You're not going to be misled by like overdosing on those ideas, I don't think. And same goes with the happiness things. Just remembering that happiness is a choice and it's a skill and you have to work at it and you could be a certain percentage closer to it every day. Those are just useful things to be reminded of constantly and it just rewires you a little bit. And I, I think I made progress on both of those. Certainly like changed my taste for opportunities, probably people to some extent. Hopefully it changed how I write too. <laughs> Walking that path, moving through those things and just changing your internal voice a little bit. I think it made me better, hopefully a little better communicator. 
How did it change the people you hang out with? Naval is a great, this will, probably won't be word for word, but the better someone's values are, the closer he will allow them to be to him. And I think that's a great way to go through life. I think this is adapted from Buffettism in no such thing as a good deal with a bad person. You start to see people either walking similar paths or resonating with similar frequencies. I think part of it is the book itself. The book is a lighthouse for people who agree with these ideas. And there's so many times like meeting you, it's like, oh, you wrote that book? I love that book. It's like, oh, cool. If you love all the ideas in that book, we probably have a lot to talk about. We have things in common. We got good ideas. We probably have a similar value system, similar moral code. I'm not an expert in Grant Cardone or anything, but if someone says, oh, I'm a huge fan of Grant Cardone, I don't immediately assume that we have a lot in common or I want any business with you or you have a specific skill set or worldview. But I think it is that way with Naval. And it's the same way with Charlie Munger. Like whoever is on your mental Mount Rushmore, it becomes shared common ground for people. Some of my closest friends are people I met because we were the only three people in our 20s at the Daily Journal meeting there to like listen to Charlie Munger in person in LA in 2015. That's a good filter. That shows me that we have a lot to talk about, a lot of common interests, a lot of values in common. Yeah, that was a really good point. Going through it, I guess we'll do Naval and we'll move to Balaji because I'd love to compare and contrast them. When you hear them talking about Naval or if you're getting into debate, do you think that they get most wrong about him? Even though he's very distilled and very clear thinker and shares his thoughts, what are some of the things that people get most wrong? I don't know if this is the most common one, but it was the most frustrating one for me to hear. I have a good friend who, who took this to her book club, like a ladies book club. And she's like, my friend wrote this. Let's all read it. They talked about it. And she like told me about this conversation. And she's like, I got into like an actual argument with this woman because she was like, well, he's rich. Like we can't take his advice on how to get rich. He has it all already. Like, how can he tell us what it's like to be happy? What it's like? And she's like, did you read it? He was a poor immigrant, single parent household. Like he's he lived the American dream. Like it's very easy to look at where someone is and not appreciate the journey that they've been on, even if you literally just read the story of how they got there, to come up with defensive reasons for why what they're telling you doesn't apply. And I think there's something to absolutely learn from everybody, but it's when you see a story like Naval's, Naval clearly has some gifts genetically. He was very smart. He was reading from an early age. He tested into good schools. Anybody who's met him would say that guy is smart, like above average IQ which not everybody is going to be born with. But you really can't say that he didn't do absolutely everything with the gifts that he had and rose meritocratically through this democratic capitalist society that we have. And it's fucking incredible. And there's a lot to learn from people who can do that. And he's very generously sharing the principles and the things that he used to do. And I assess myself, like I know him incredibly well, but it seems to me like he's doing it for generally good, wholesome reasons and helping other people to understand what he did and how he did it. And I think there's a lot to learn from it. So I think the misconception is probably to be turned off by assuming that because he is where he is now, other people can't get there or can't emulate it or to assume that what he's saying doesn't apply. And he says, like, I came up with these principles when I was 14 years old. I've just been applying them for 40 years or however long. I think they work. And now I'm confident in sharing them. Like, that's a really useful thing. Yeah. It's also a very kind way to look at it. It's a perfect segue to the Bology anthology, which is also a very interesting person, but very different. And just to start with that point about very rich, 
being an East Coast Boston guy who grew up, who worked in an institution of all sorts, the notion that not all billionaires are the same. And Balaji, in a very kind of caustic way, is there's founders and there's nepotists. Could you explain the view of money and why people who might treat all billionaires like they're out of touch, they can't help, I can't learn anything? And I think this is something that probably Naval and Balaji agree on. Yeah. I mean, the pithiest version of it is another Balaji quote, which is like, there's a tremendous difference between born rich and built rich. And he details this in, I think, a pretty compelling way in one of the chapters. We have, for whatever bizarre social reason, seems like there is a meme that is like anti-billionaire, billionaire shouldn't exist, which is like dangerously anti-capitalist in some ways that kind of alarm me. I understand the naive first level interpretation of, oh, that person has so much more, it must be unfair. But that doesn't really look at the big picture and respect the inputs and outputs, especially when you see someone like Naval or Balaji, who was born some advantage, just like getting to America and having some intelligence speaking English, like those are huge advantages on their own, but seeing who can truly like build and grow and see the compounding like meritocracy be like, oh, you've got something, you've got an opportunity. We're going to help you build. You built a successful company. Then you were a successful investor. Then you build another successful company. Like it gets harder and harder to deny the merit of those individuals piece by piece. And Tlaib has an amazing graphic on this that I think shows like a 3D cube. And it's like people perceive the top 10% to be bad because they are wealthy when actually like it's the vertical slice of grifters and cheats and rent seeking behavior that are an immoral drag on society of which maybe 10% are the rich, but also that goes all the way down. Separating like somebody who is a CEO who built their company from the ground up piece by piece, vote by vote, dollar by dollar, customer by customer, and seeing that they had a very different path and should receive a very different level of credibility than someone whose the business was handed down to them generation over generation. Not that that person isn't still excellent, but it's just a little different. And we, as a like a democratic capitalist culture, should not lose the respect for the people who truly did show their worth and create something of value and like win the meritocratic game. It's very dangerous to lose sight of that, in my opinion. I agree. My hope is that's an angry minority when people get upset and that there's more of a silent majority or just a middle ground. Obviously, you can see the debates in Twitter as the global sparring ground for this type of stuff, like pro-Elon, anti-Elon. It becomes religious and tribal to people of what they're upset about. There's this thing of like getting out of childhood that there's good and bad and that there isn't this very complex world that there's bad people that do good things and good people that do horrible things. I think that's what it is, or at least I like to think that America is still the land of capitalism, but I could just be optimistic. And I want to get your thoughts on this because it's come up a lot in these circles of this like techno optimism and this view that I think you share that people are like down on technology. My question about this negative view of technology or this fear of this negative view is, is it really different? Like when they invented the radio or they invented telephones and cars, can't I find articles or stories about people losing their absolute minds that we were going to ruin everything, but that the people that had the innovation that had the ambition were like, look, do I want to go listen to that group of people over there with signs that are crying that aren't going to change anything about the world? Or do I want to go work in that garage with that crazy lunatic? I'm yeah. always going to that garage. So like, <laughs> is it really that bad this time? 
I'm not saying we shouldn't push against it, but I'm just pushing on the idea. Is it really that bad? No, I mean, you are correct that there is always pushback against new technology and change. The Pessimist Archive is like a great Twitter account about this. And you're right, you can find it forever. What's really hard to like appreciate, I think, and I don't know for sure, is whether that's a vocal 5% or a silent 55%, depending, going each way. Reasons why it might be different this time. So let me just like emphasize one way or another. One is that when people say technology now, what they mostly mean is like computers, phones, and software. That's kind of a nonsensical term. And Balaji points this out in the book, right? He's like, you would never say the physics industry. Obviously, every industry exists within the laws of physics. Every industry has technology applied to some degree. It's kind of nonsensical to say, oh, the technology industry. What we have is a software industry or a computer industry. And technology really is the frontier of new possibilities within every industry. So that is, I think, related to the fact that for 150 years up until maybe the 70s, we saw literal miracles, things that we did not believe were possible within the bounds of physics, electrification, flight, internal combustion, steel, landing on the moon, starting the internet, the telegraph, the telephone, satellites. Imagine being born using an outhouse and living through the 100 years that ended in us landing on the moon. You have a mind-blowing thing happen every 10 years. And for the last 40 years, we've had iPhones get way better and software be miraculous, but it's a little more abstract than, oh, holy shit, we just, humans can fly for the first time in millions of years. That is just a different level of insane. And so we haven't seen those technologies get dispersed to the public that absolutely break all your prior conceptions. And there are a few candidates that could happen at any moment, at any year, any decade here that would take us through the next industrial revolution. And like we are owed another industrial revolution between AI, the potential for basically limitless or low marginal cost energy. And this one's a little further behind, but nanotechnology can 100x or 1000x our level of material wealth, which is a very difficult thing to imagine. Just like the previous industrial revolution was insane to consider how all those things fit together and the level of abundance that we'd have on the other side of it. So I think a lot of people, when I'd say technology is amazing, the first thing out of their mouth is like, but what about the downsides? Aren't you worried about the kids and the VR and how addictive social media is? I'm like, sure, yeah, there are downsides to every individual technology. There are risks. But every technology in human history, you can make a very strong case, has done more good than bad. And you can say that most people who are alive now, especially the like young, eager, ambitious, haven't seen crazy breakthroughs in technology that keep them like sprinting for those next things. There is so much on the other side of that paper wall that is abundant nuclear energy, nanotechnology, huge breakthroughs in like the speed of travel or the cities or on the other side of a ton of energy is basically abundant fresh water. Like desalinization is just a function of energy costs. We have invented self-driving cars and there's nothing but a regulatory and social battle about whether we should roll them out. That's fucking insane. 10 years ago when it was just a concept, people were so excited about it. Like, oh my God, this is going to save millions of lives, senseless deaths and car accidents, drunk drivers, years of man hours wasted behind the wheel. And now we have them. And there's this like regulatory battle of everywhere they are to actually like get them rolled out in use. Yeah, it's a tale as old as time in some ways, but it's that the stakes have never been higher and the rewards have never been higher. And we have these headwinds for it. 
socially and experientially for the last few decades. So I think this is a big pill I've taken over the last few years, as you can probably tell from the amount of words that just came out of me. But I believe technology is a moral good, and it is the only path for a safe and happy continued existence for humanity. And the other side of that is degrowth, acceleration, scarcity, limits on childbirth, rations. That is a dark path, and we don't want to go down it. And the other path is all in acceleration on technology, loosening regulations, more experimentation, higher appetite for risk, more engineers, more scientists, more education, more effort and intensity in that direction. And a society all the way to the government, to the people, to the consumers who understands and respects that. And I hope to God, this book plants some of those seeds and brings people along. Wow. I'm glad I triggered you. That was wonderful. (laughs) (laughs) Triggered by Eric Golden, new podcast. I'll push you further on it in two ways. The first is the quote, Charlie Munger, who I know you like a lot. He had a wonderful quote about whatever politicians are in charge today, I'm going to mess it up, give you uh, admiration or make you miss the ones in the past. He's popular in many ways that people always have a nostalgia for it used to be better, but they're just full of shit because they're not remembering the picture entirely. Like when people would complain about Walmart, to me, the technology debate can be taken so much further than just apps and social media that Walmart was a technology that destroyed every local store which was the center of community and the center of people coming together. But he's like, well, I grew up in a town where you couldn't get stuff and that that was really hard. (laughs) And so like, you don't remember the hard part. You just remember the, but it was really nice that you got to talk to Mr. Magoo behind the candy aisle. I still question the technology thing. I'm completely aligned and I'm a full believer that technology is the area to invest in that when people want to talk about equality or making the world better is to give people more with less a hundred percent aligned. It's just very interesting that the debate, this is going to get into biology specifically, it seems that we've entered a new chapter where the stakes are now higher for people, the noise has gotten louder, people like you who are, you're a very even-keeled person, people describe you that, now suddenly passionately to take the opportunity to state your opinion as if this time is different. And that's, I think, where my question is. Why do you believe this time is different or what is causing such a tune-up? You've got Andreessen with techno-optimist, you've got Balaji with network state, you've got people saying like, if we don't, we're losing the narrative that there's, uh, let me restate it. In the 90s coming out of it, tech was everything. The heroes of society, everything was getting better. And now they're the villains. Anytime a new technology comes out, the thing is to stop it. And I just don't know if that is truly a change. We're, we're in a new inflection point where this we're treating technology in this much deeper fear. Or this has just always been the way. And for some reason, the volume's gotten louder. I think there are always people who are cautious about change or fearful of change. Psychologically, it's just scary. There are also always people who are threatened by whatever the new technology happens to be. It's no surprise that cab drivers or truck drivers or whatever feel threatened by the self-driving cars, for example, and would fight it, even though it's objectively for society, the benefit of society at large. So there's always a more scared minority fighting against any individual technology. I think over the last few decades, a few interesting things have happened, which is one, the technology that has boomed, Google, Facebook in particular, and social media have directly threatened the business models of media, which of course you would expect media to fight back. So if media can create the perception that tech is the bad guy, 
of course that would be their motivation for the last 20 years. As soon as it became clear that they were a threat to their advertising, their classifieds, the attention that people put into social media instead of newspapers or magazines or TV. So that is a narrative that serves the media. And it's not hard to get the New York Times to go right. Yeah, break up the monopolies, break up big tech, they must be regulated. And the other is the fact that we're just a little more, the US speaking about in particular here, like establishment is just much bigger. And there's now almost nothing that is not incredibly regulated. I think another answer for what is different is a ton of regulatory capture, malicious regulatory capture, one. And two, I'm going to say just like benign regulatory capture, like the fact that systems tend to continue to expand and encroach, even if they're going well beyond serving their purpose and actually causing harm. That is the story, I think, of the FDA to some extent, maybe the FAA, though they are probably like very good. The NRC actually like does not actually approve or support nuclear energy. They're just extremely risk averse. The societal appetite for risk at an institutional level, I think is much lower than it has been before. And part of what made America great or built it to what it is today, much of what we enjoy about it is like that we could build a bridge in two years really quick and really cheap. And we've lost some of those abilities some due to safety, some due to unionization, whatever. There's a ton of reasons why things are just moving a little slower, and a little more overhead and a little more expense and a little more safety regulation. And it's hard to imagine us kicking ass at a really big infrastructure project these days, but we certainly have a history of doing it. I don't know exactly when we lost that capability, but we should all want it back. I don't usually do this, but yeah, you've triggered a question in me of, do you think about countries like companies in the sense of if you look at stuff like the innovators dilemma that a small company starts off, it takes a lot of risk. So like a good example is that in the 1930s, I don't think the fear of like risk of life was a big deal. When they built the tunnels for water under New York City, there's this great story of people just shooting out of the Hudson because humans in pressure would just launch up and they would just die. But like people sacrifice their lives just to build stuff. But that was just normal behavior. So the risk of life was a different acceptance. And it connects to me like about a company when you're early, you have to take risks. But then when you become big and successful, then you become risk averse and you want to protect. And the innovator's dilemma is like, oh, we're so successful. We're afraid to take those new risks in a country. Suddenly you're like a European nation. Once the bastion of risk-taking and innovation slowly matures and dies. And I think this is a biology thing too of like, do you believe that sovereign nations have the same life cycle of a company that eventually a company is started and it has a death date. And it's just to Bezos's term, the goal of the people running it is to put that death date off as far as possible. Or is there something that you would say is different from a company to the sovereign level? I think it's super multivariate at the country level, right? Like there's a lot of inputs, culture and geography and demographics and the leadership itself. There's a lot of reasons why it would be different flashing back through like Peter Zeehan's books and Zihan or whatever his books and seeing like a state and stuff like that. I think there's like a loose analogy and there's probably like a story arc. I hope it's like a little bit of a pendulum swing. I do think we can get the US is still is unique in that it can attract the risk takers, the frontier, the pioneers, but it's needs to allow them to be pioneers. It needs to allow them to take those risks. And it's wild that land of the free you can bungee jump, you can skydive, you can take risks for no upside with your own life. But the FDA, even if you have a terminal illness, 
can prevent you from taking a potentially life-saving experimental drug or treatment that would benefit society. Whether you lived or died, at least we would have the results of that experiment and you could accelerate science and find the cure sooner for other people. And the FDA, and I think this is a good example of like system encroachment, like they are prioritizing like their institutional goals above the societal good. And they're just so risk averse that you as an individual don't have the freedom to take that drug if it exists. There's cases of this that have gone to the Supreme Court and the individual loss. And that is insane to me. And this is partly what drives Balaji's kind of like network state thesis of his position is that it's easier to just start a new frontier than it is to reform the current system. I think you could very easily, and plenty of people do, take the other side of that. I don't want to believe that the US isn't capable of improving its institutions. I think that's a dangerous thing, but I'm glad that there are people exploring all of the different paths that there are. I'm bullish on the US, but I am also aware that other countries have much more sane policies on a lot of this stuff than we do. And we should, I think, not be so proud that we can't learn from some of those experiments that other countries are running and adopt them for ourselves. On this line of thinking of biology in the network state, for those who aren't familiar with the book Atlas Shrug, there's a famous character, John Galt, and there's this question, who is John Galt? And I've wondered sometimes if like this is like an inspiration for Balaji, this character that's basically calling out the way society works and saying, let's take all the entrepreneurs and all the people that innovate and let's leave behind the rest of society and you'll see what happens. And I don't know if that's his tone or his actions. And I agree that it's interesting to me to say, what is the competitive place for the US? If US is still the greatest place and attracts the risk takers, what's the competition that keeps the US going? during the Cold War or the fear of other countries rise, there's been a belief that the country wants to innovate, to spend money, to push technology, that that would then make it the private sector. And there's this meme on the other side that that's all faded away, that now we rely on SpaceX instead of NASA, and that Apology is clearly a huge proponent of this. Would you say that that's part of his MO, is to cause that challenge? Yeah, I think so. I think Apology... I believe he has like the best intent for the species in mind and is just not afraid to like point out where the US has lost its way in being that. Atlas Shrugged is a great example because it's written in like the 50s, late 50s. And there are passages in there that they call them the looters, but like the rent seekers, the grifters, the institutionalists say that you can is almost word for word what you hear out of some of our politicians or bureaucrats or whatever. And it is eerie and prescient. And I think Ayn Rand's a little extreme in the philosophy. Like I'm not a full adherent, but I am on that side of the fence. And I think there's really useful warnings in the book. I think it's less of a guide and more of a warning. And it's useful through that lens. Thinking about Balaji now, because you can kind of tell like, not that I would describe Naval as light and Balaji as dark. But I think you've called one a monk and one a warrior. <laughs> it does remind me of like Ben Horowitz's peacetime CEO and wartime CEO. It just feels like when I read Naval, it's more philosophical. I feel lighter. And when I read Balaji, I feel heavier and I've got to do more work here. <laughs> but I love it. I think that Balaji's desire to confront the world and his terms in a certain way is really admirable. He probably has enough wealth that he's not worried about a lot of things so that does probably help him. I'm not saying he wasn't like this before, but maybe give a little bit of background of what you've learned about Balaji's nature, that Balaji's the person, I don't know him at all, but just would love to throw down in any debate at any moment, at any time with anyone. Yeah, I think that's true. 
two things like characterize his entire life, which is like, he's very smart. I think a warrior is a good archetype, like brave. He will stand against anybody. He'll throw down, as you said. And I think it's always for a good cause, at least at his best. Certainly it is for a good cause. And I respect a lot his approach to seeking truth, which is to like, he talks about this a little bit in the book, like arguing from primary sources, citing data, actually getting into the data, deciding if you can trust it, interpreting it, finding your options. It's a little Elon Musky. Have a super long term view of what the risks are to the society. And imagine you're playing a video game of our species. Like, what is the work that you can do? How can you deploy the resources that you have to like make the best future for humanity? And I think biology can sometimes seem, he can be either hard to follow or he can seem confrontational. And I think it's part of my motivation in writing this book was to like show the foundation, like the underpinnings of like, why he's arguing for what he's arguing, why he's doing the work that he's doing, why he's picking fights with people who are pushing narratives that aren't actually supported by the data. Yeah. To be honest, I don't think I knew about apology until COVID. I think that the COVID thing was like, this guy is saying stuff. And for whatever reason, I people are always predicting the end of the world or the end of the markets or the end of something. Doomerism just sells way more than optimism. But the way he was presenting information, it felt very different. But maybe just a quick sketch of him, because I think it will get people who don't know more interested in the book. When I've asked people about this, the funniest thing is he's like the person with multiple personalities. Like, was that the guy who's the CTO of Coinbase? Did he found Coinbase? Was he the guy who did like the genome thing? And he's done all this shit, which is even more crazy, like the depth he had at that moment. So a sketch on Bology and that COVID moment, because I think that was for a lot of people when they first got introduced to him. Yeah. So grew up in New York, immigrant parents. They got into Stanford, I think two or three masters and a PhD in computational biology from Stanford. And that led into this genomic startup that they sold for, I think, three or $400 million. Then he became a partner at Andreessen Horowitz, a general partner, helped them start the crypto fund, helped them do a fair number of some of their large investments. And invested in a few hundred startups himself. So good track record on that side of things. Started 21.com, which became earn.com, which was then acquired by Coinbase. And then he became the CTO of Coinbase for a while and was very early buyer and supporter of crypto. And about that time started giving talks and stuff more often. I think the first public version where you can see a seed that became the network state was like 2013 talk at Y Combinator about Silicon Valley's exit. And I would say now he sort of works for an ideology. He is investing and creating and writing books and truly like going about starting a network state and supporting people who are starting network states through a variety of means. But yeah, the COVID thing was just this bizarre side quest of he just saw the data early and started like interpreting it and talking about it. He has this biology background and this sense of understanding the exponents and this fundamental distrust of media that like when they started reporting, like it's no big thing. He was just pulled out the sword and was ready to be like, no, like people are going to die because you're downplaying the danger of this thing. You don't know what you're talking about because you're a tech journalist who can't do math. Look at the data, look at the math, look at the numbers, look at this. And Mark Andreessen says, uh, like worked with him closely at A16Z and says, when biology is wrong is because he over-extrapolates, not under-extrapolates. He takes an idea and takes it to 11 when maybe in reality it stops at a six or a seven. But I think that's what makes it so useful. Like if I normally can see to a three or four and you spend some time in his head with his mental models and see how he sees the world, it helps you get 
to maybe uh, four or five or five or six. And like you get better at seeing these second and third order effects and just spending some time in the world that he sees, which is the technologies that are coming down the pipe 10, 20 years in the future that'll actually affect the outcomes and the economy and the lives and the careers and what the opportunities are that are like about to unlock. It's just really, really interesting. Follow up to Bologies 11, the bet that Bitcoin was going to go to a million dollars. To me, do you think that was a moment where he truly believed that? Or I felt like it was the best advertisement buy of all time, where if a Super Bowl commercial costs $8 million for 15 seconds, Balaji paid $2 million for like seven days of nonstop coverage about him and Bitcoin. But did he actually extrapolate and believe something was going to happen or just understand the second and third order effects of $2 million, the media, and how he could get them to bite on it like candy? I don't know. I think if you were generous with him, the latter, and if you're a critic, you think the former. Yeah, yeah I, I wasn't in his brain. I don't know. He certainly knows how the media works and how social media works. I would not be surprised if the generous interpretation is the right one. I think it is also brave in that sense of like people came in hot on him for that prediction, but it also really shifted how people were thinking about things. That prediction was about a specific catalyst, and like maybe the catalyst is different, but the setup is still the same. And I think a lot of people appreciate the setup and the big context that we're in that didn't before he did that. It's also interesting in the people that only read the headlines and feel like they know, and people that are like spent two hours reading the more detailed stuff that he wrote or said about it that are like, oh, actually, pretty good points in there. I'm glad I went the one level deeper. Now that you've written a book about Naval, a book about Balaji. I'm curious, when you think about the audience, what do you think the overlap is or how those books will hit different audiences? Yeah, I think we'll certainly have some overlap. The Almanac Naval appealed to way more people than I thought it was. So maybe the, the anthology of Balaji will do the same. Where it overlaps, I think is interesting. So Naval is very philosophy sort of blending into strategy. And Balaji is really strategy blending into tactics. So I think a lot of the questions that people have asked me as a result of the Almanac and Naval, like, I know I should start a company or I know I want equity in a company or I know technology is really important. Like, how do I decide? How do I choose which company to build? How do I choose which company to start, join? How do I know where the opportunities are going to be? The Anthology of Biology is very, gets into tactics and specifics about some of those questions. So I think certainly if you were on board with the Naval book because of the wealth principles and the building pieces, then you're going to love this book. I would not be surprised if some of the people who really love the happiness stuff, like Balaji does not spend as much time on happiness. <laughs> There's some really interesting stuff about the media and the truth and stuff like that in there, but it is a little more strategy tactics than high-level philosophy. That gets me into your newest role as a publisher. So I'm curious to take the take of the backstory of how you are now not just an author, but you're also the CEO of a publishing company. So how we got to that seat. And then I want to learn more about the market for books and the strategy behind all that. Yeah, this is a crazy story. This was like nowhere on my bingo card for what was going to happen to me this year. So to rewind slightly, I stumbled my way into writing the Almanac and Naval. A tweet, it happened. I just like opened up a Word doc and started working, right? Like I did not know anything about how to write a book or anything like that. When I thought I hit this milestone of like, I don't know, maybe I'm done. I don't know how this works. I just tweeted. And I was like, I think I have a completed manuscript. Yay. And Tucker Max, who sold millions of books, is a four best-selling books, I think. We'd been like sort of DMing a little bit. He'd read my blog. I'd read his. 
just reached out and was like, Hey, let me help you publish this. Or let me answer any questions you have, or how can I help? And we got on the phone and he kind of talked me through this landscape of the publishing industry and what the options were and what the outcomes might be. And he was like, this is like what I built scribe to do. Like, this is our bread and butter. We can help you go from, Hey, I've got a manuscript to a published book and why it was kind of the right path for me and this book compared to traditional publisher or anything like that. And I signed up with Scribe. I went through the whole publishing process. I loved my experience. The book is fantastic. The design is great. The proofreading is awesome. The publishing is great. Like the distribution was helpful. And they really helped make this book a success. And because I published through Scribe, it's technically self-published. So at the end, I own all the rights and royalties and the files and the freedom to do whatever I want to with my book. So that's part of why I can give it away free. The digital version is available for free which I think is an incredible like net good for humanity. I think these ideas can help everybody. So started working on the second book almost right away, knew I wanted to publish it with Scribe, signed up with them, was like halfway through the process. And I just started hearing rumors that like Scribe was in trouble or Scribe's looking for a buyer. So I called the CEO and was like, yo, what's going on? Like, is this, you all good? Like, yeah, we the financing trouble. Like we're looking for a new capital partners. Like, okay, give me some background, give me some numbers. I know people who buy companies. Let me see if I can help. I'm a fan. I've referred people. Like I want this company to be in good hands. And with somebody who like thinks long-term and isn't going to ruin this critical vendor for me as an author, right? So I made a few phone calls and these guys, Sieva and Xavier, who I'd met a few times at Capital Camp and at the Berkshire meeting and follow on Twitter. They're great follows. And they got excited about publishing, got excited about the process. Xavier had worked in it before, so knew the industry. Flew to Austin, started meeting the team and was like, man, there's real talent here. This is like a sound business model that just financially was mismanaged and got off the tracks. So this is a whole long story and the mechanics of the deal itself. The bank was owed a bunch of money and so foreclosed on the business. But the end result is that they ended up buying this company after a few months of work and then called me and were like, hey, you brought us this deal. We closed it. Thank you. This is amazing. By the way, now we need somebody to run it and we think that should be you. And I was like, there's no way I'm your first phone call. And they were like, actually, you are. <laughs> I've like never CEO'd before. And they were like, yeah, yeah, but we we like your instincts. We like all your stuff. We've got the infrastructure to like help make you successful. We think you have a really good nose for this industry. You're clearly like can speak to the merits of the company. You've been referring people. You brought it to us. You sold us on the opportunity. We think it should be you. And so I had a few long conversations with my wife, ended up joining up. I'm a f- two or three months in now. Onboarding as a CEO is a wild ride, but it's really, really fun to now be in a place where I get to be Tucker. It's like to other authors and get to just like pick up the phone and be like, hey, you want to write a book? Let me help. Let me walk you. Let me show you the path. Let me show you the options. Talk you through everything. And let's see what a book can do for you, man. So we can cut this out if you don't want to share this, but I always thought selling a book was a really horrible economic bad thing to do people didn't like running a marathon like they wanted to have done it i thought the economics of it are horrible if you sell a million books and your book costs 20 bucks do you get paid 20 million dollars because you self-published no no (laughs) that's not how it works um but you do do a lot better than if you sell a million books through a traditional publisher can you walk me through like the economics of the two models yeah so a traditional publisher is a pretty onerous thing. So they will give you an advance, let's just say $100,000. They get a license for the full length of your copyright's life. So basically assume creative control 
and the vast majority of the finances. So they'll take between 75 and 90% of the royalty of every sale, depending on the format and some of the details. But they take the vast majority of the economics and final cut, essentially, of your book. And as I mentioned, you sort of lose some of the freedoms that you have for how you want to use your book. If your book is a tool to grow your consulting business or your speaking business or something like that, you can't just give it away for free because the publisher is owed 90 cents on the dollar of your book. So you have to buy your own books from them. Whereas I, like, I don't have to do that because I'm self-published. So I earn 100% of my royalties. Royalties obviously are not 100% of what a reader pays for a book. Like There's Amazon, there's distribution, there's printing, there's a bunch of costs that go into it. You can absolutely make money from a book if you are willing to take the full financial risk. Like I paid all the costs of that upfront, but it has been a great trade for me personally. Obviously, most books don't sell more than a few thousand copies. So like you got to know yourself and know what the economic value of your book is going to be and what bets and what risk you want to take. I don't think my path is the path for everybody, but a lot of authors come to describe with different goals, whether that is growing a business, having an impact on a cause, or like David Goggins, right? Came in, he knew he wanted the full financial upside of his book. So he's like, I want to take the costs. You guys are the best, most professional, like high quality way to help me publish a book where I retain all the control and all the rights and all the financial upside. This is my choice. This is my path. And he's done incredibly well. So there are upsides to traditional publishing. Like if you absolutely need an advance to get your book out the door or to have the space in your life to write it, go to a traditional publisher who's going to pay upfront and financially de-risk that for you. Just know that they're going to take the majority of the back end and you're going to lose some of your freedoms along the way. Or if the distribution is more important to you for ego reasons than getting the full economic benefit, then it's no secret that like traditional publishers are great at distribution and can get you into more bookstores. The reality is just that most books are sold online and on Amazon. People have the perception that being in bookstores matters a ton. And that was maybe true 30 years ago. This is like not actually the key driver of success of a book as an asset anymore. If I write a book and I self-publish a scribe and roughly what percentage of the book's sale price do I get to keep? It depends a lot on your pricing because there's like floors and percentages. It could be anywhere from a dollar to 10, depending on where you sell it and what price you set. If you sell everything on Amazon for as low of a price as you want, you maybe make a dollar book. If you're selling huge bulk print runs to events because you're speaking there and like that's part of your speaking package or you're selling them direct yourself on Shopify or something, you can capture a much higher margin per book. You made a tweet I'm going to push back on, which is that if you can write a tweet, you can write a book. If you can write a sentence, you can write a book. This is one of my many snarky responses that I put in my draft and then I deleted, which is like <laughs> basically my response, which I'll tell you now is, but that doesn't mean anyone's going to fucking read it. And my point was you wrote an excellent book. And so like, I think that in this world of FinTwit and podcasts and newsletters and blogs, you and Morgan Housel, which Morgan's become one of the- He's a really nice guy. For a lot of people, everyone wants to be him, but I'm like, this guy's clearly a writer who knows how to write books for an audience that wants to read them. And just because someone else writes a blog, they're not going to get to Morgan's level. So I'm curious, as now a publisher, you're an author, now publisher, how you think about sourcing that type of talent that's going to produce stuff like Goggins, Tucker Max, Morgan Housel, Eric Jorgensen, you, you're creating like brands and names where now you're going to write more books, which I want to get to, but how you think about sourcing that talent when everyone's producing content. 
Yeah. So the beautiful thing about Scribe is like we are available to any author. We do not have to make a judgment call about whether this author is going to sell a million copies. We're a professional services firm, basically. Like we will help any author create the very best version of their book that they can. We will let you make all the final creative decisions. We will give you our wisest counsel and most earnest recommendations. But at the end of the day, the power is in your hands. It is your decision. So we don't have to hunt for the next Morgan Housel. All I have to do is stand here and say, like, if you think you are the next Morgan Housel, we would love to help you be your best, publish your best books. And we would love to help you capture the full upside of the value that you're creating. I don't have to say, no, I don't think your book is good enough. We're not going to publish it. If people want to publish a book, we can make that dream come true for whatever reason it is, whether it's just cementing a legacy, whether it's growing a different business. We have a lot of conversations that are very pure business case kind of things. Somebody's like, I want to be the person in my niche, in my industry. You know, Back to that Mark Andreessen quote you mentioned about there's great power in being the person who writes things down. Authors can have tons of different motivations and we're ambivalent about it. If you come to me and say, like, I want to sell a million copies, I want to make $5 million off this book, help me win that game, we can do that. If you say, I want the best book possible to give to my company and my community or to give to every teacher in America because I want to guide that conversation or I want to impact this cause. We have an author who's like, all I care about is preventing gay teen suicide. I will burn years of my life and tens of thousands of dollars if I can save one life. That is my cause. That's a conversation we can have. No traditional publisher is going to, they may care about that cause, but they can't like build a business on that mission. There's some truth to the like, and you weren't the only one thinking that because some people didn't leave their tweets in their drafts folder, right? But should you? Should you write a book? Would it be a good book? I think more people are intimidated by, they see just the whole mountain. So the motivation, my purpose behind that idea, which I'm sure is not the last time I'll tweet some form of it, is, is just that you can make it one bite at a time. Like it's a really big intimidating thing. And people, you know, books are sacred to a lot of people and they're intimidated by the medium itself. And the fact that so many people are like, oh my God, it was a years long process. It was so hard. It was so trying. It was so taxing. It was so intimidating. Yes, in many cases, but let's break it down. Like people have written hundreds of thousands of words of tweets. Many of them are excellent or blog posts or newsletters. That's the beginning. That's the testing ground of a book, of something really great. And it's a little bit of a, different craft, but it's not like this thing that's up on a pedestal that's only accessible to people with New York book agents and millions of followers. This is a thing, like if you can write a sentence that you're proud of and you are willing to put a little bit of different kinds of work in, build a sentence, build a paragraph, build a chapter, brick by brick by brick, you can build something really big that you can be really proud of. And as somebody who now has published a few books, I'm like, I get so much less joy out of Twitter. Like I take Twitter so much less seriously because it just, it feels like building a sandcastle in the tide when like you can just walk up the beach a little bit and like build a house that's going to like outlast you and like a thousand year house that people might be reading for tens or hundreds of years that is like leaving value for your kids. Like, do you think your kids are going to scroll through your Twitter account and be like, ah, miss him. Let's put a soul into something. Let's take on a craft. It doesn't have to be so scary. I love it. I think you're spot on. I think I'll delete my Twitter before my kids could ever see it. <laughs> One thing I'm very excited about that your book and Morgan's book both do for me as someone who loves to read and reads way too many business books is the New York publisher, 250 pages. These are the size of the chapter things. Drives me fucking nuts. 
Like I know people that are much better than me that can just blow through them faster because they have to produce a certain style, which is so rigid. And just your style and Morgan's style being different short paragraphs in a way that's something I actually care about is fucking awesome. So I'm excited that not only self-publishing and giving people a chance to build homes instead of sandcastles and waste time trying to get in snarky Twitter battles, which is probably a great addition to society. I'm also <laughs> happy just as the reader. I don't think I'll ever write a book. If I do, I would draw into something like that. But I do like consuming books, and I love the fact that they're different styles. The anthology is a great style. Morgan's books are great styles, and they're just refreshing because it's not the same 250 bullshit that I'm just kind of sick of being pushed down my throat. It's worth recognizing that there's a new sort of generation of writers. I think Morgan Housel is one. I think James Clear is another great one who sort of came up on the internet and got that fast feedback loop. They're used to writing for holding your attention in a feed, and they can transition that into a book because the reality is we're competing for attention with TikTok, with Instagram, with these like incredible dopamine machines. And so you've got to keep a reader moving. You've got to keep a pace. You've got to make it a really clear, really objectively good use of their time. And I love seeing when my books are just beat to hell. There's sticky notes and highlights on every page. I want a really high highlight density. I want people to feel like they're getting something valuable out of every minute or 10 minutes that they spend with a book. And that'll make them pick it up more often. It'll make them reread it. It'll make them recommend it to people. I want them to be really like rich and dense, not hard to get through, but like nutritious on every page. Oh, it is. I told you this when I read the first one. I love the fact that I just leave them around my house. I hope my kids don't pick up Twitter, but I hope they pick up the book around the house because the cool thing about the almanac of the anthology is you can pick this up, open up to a random chapter and just read that and enjoy it and then put it back down and not feel like the obligation of, oh, I should go back. Where was I? Did I get the whole founding point before that? Which is awesome. Yeah, I think that's incredibly useful. Picking up Portrait Almanac off my dad's shelf when I was 21 absolutely changed my life. So I hope this is on a lot of bookshelves and a lot of kids pick it up and that proud tradition continues. All right. So the next book, it's got to be either Peter Thiel or Musk are my two guests. Who do you want to write about next? Those are good guesses. I am a meaningful percentage of the way into Elon right now. Already? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Is your vision you're just going to keep doing this type of practice? No, I think I'm going to reevaluate after Elon. There's a lot of stuff I want to write that's like a lot of different formats. And I don't want to like stretch this farther than it should be stretched. Naval and Balaji and Elon are all fit this incredible mold where this is the right format for them. I'm not going to do 20 of these just to do 20 of these. I'm happy to like Seinfeld it and just call it what it is and be proud of what got done. And I'm not going to say never, but like that's all I have planned. Eric, this has been great. Whether it's one more or 20 more, I'm excited to read all of the stuff you produce. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor. If you enjoyed this episode, check out joincolossus.com. There you will find every episode of this podcast, along with transcripts, our weekly newsletter, and resources to continue your learning.